0: Our reading today is from the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, verses 9 through 11, and chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper, and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the throne were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. Verse 9, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him, who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, The root of David has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went... And took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The word of the Lord.
1: Many of you may be familiar with the TV show Stranger Things, Uh, but if you're not, here's what it's all about. Uh, We live in this normal world. In Stranger Things, um, there's another world that exists alongside our world but is unseen to us. But this other world isn't just a parallel version of our world, it's a shadow world. If our world is a world of light and joy and love, then this shadow world is a world of darkness, despair, and destruction. It's called the upside down because it's the opposite of everything good about our world. Now, in the show, some characters find their way into the upside down. And because they live in the right side up, as it were, they live in a world of light and hope and joy and love, they can see immediately that the upside down is a dark and fearful distortion of the normal world that we live in. Now, do you have the picture in your mind? I want to invite you into a little thought experiment. What if um, the only world you knew was the upside down? That means that your whole reality would be defined and controlled by darkness, despair, and destruction. But then imagine that somehow you got a glimpse of of the right side up. You got a glimpse of a world of light and love and joy. If you discovered that a world like that existed and was available to you, that would completely transform your experience of the world you were living in, wouldn't it? We think that we live in the right side up, that our world is the normal world of light and joy and love. What if our world was really more like the upside down? But there was another world available to us, a world of real light and love and joy. And that the difference between that world and our world is infinitely greater than the difference between the normal world of Stranger Things and the upside down. What would happen if you got a glimpse of that world? Friends, that's what worship is. To worship is to get a glimpse of ultimate reality, and there's nothing more important than that because when we change the way we see reality, it transforms the way we respond to reality. How are you responding to reality right now? Is there fear or anxiety or uncertainty? Is there um, depression or darkness or even despair in your life? Is there fatigue? Are we getting tired? (laughs) When we change the way we see reality, it transforms the way we respond to reality. The book of Revelation transforms the way we see reality so it can transform the way that we respond to reality. How does it do that? Revelation is all about jesus christ appearing to the apostle john in his full divine glory and saying write what you see the whole book of revelation is the apostle john telling us what he saw this passage that we just read is the beginning of that vision what did john see he saw worship he saw worship in heaven he sees a throne there are some tears and he sees a lamb the throne the tears the lamb. Let's look at each one of those three things and see how they help us transform the way we respond to reality. The first thing is the throne. It begins like this. Uh, John says, at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Now, this is a vision of God. But notice something about this description or this vision. Um, Really, uh, what it's talking about is the throne. Uh, Over and over again, this this talk about the throne dominates chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation. It mentions the throne 17 times in 25 verses. But that means right away, we've got a problem. Because in our culture, uh, thrones and kings, the kings who sit on those thrones, um, oftentimes represent to us images of ruthless domination or patriarchal oppression. So it's natural for us to look at this and say, well, if that's who this God is, then I want nothing to do with this God, which makes perfect sense. But if we begin to dig a little bit beneath the surface we begin to see that this is actually showing us the opposite. Because notice something about this description of God. Other than telling us that that God had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, which are precious stones, really there is no description of God. And especially, uh, Revelation doesn't use any human language or human terms at all to describe God. And that's intentional. By avoiding any human language to talk about God, Revelation is telling us that God is completely unlike any other human power, authority, or ruler. In other words, the point is not to perpetuate oppressive and dominating models of power, but to draw the strongest possible contrast between God's throne and every other throne in the world. In other words, Revelation is telling us that there's only one throne in all of creation that's real. Every other throne is a counterfeit, and it always leads to oppression, domination, and corruption. And boy, that really comes out when you understand something about the political context back then. Revelation was written during the last decade of the first century, somewhere in the 90s AD. Now, the Roman emperor at that time was a fellow named Domitian. There he is. Um, During his reign... Every single person in Rome, in the whole empire, was required by law to worship the emperor as divine. If you didn't do that, then you faced severe punishment at the hands of the Roman Empire. In other words, the Roman government was the very embodiment of ruthless domination and patriarchal oppression. Basically, Rome was saying, worship Rome or we will crush you. That's what it was saying. So if you look at verse 11, notice that there are 24 elders and and four living creatures. The passage talks about them. The 24 elders are like, it's like a heavenly council of angelic beings. And the four living creatures represent all of creation, uh, all of this scene. They're all worshiping God. And notice it says that they were saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Now, That phrase, our Lord and God, in the first century, during the reign of Domitian, that was a phrase that everyone in Rome was required to say about the emperor. In Latin, it was Dominus et Deus Noster, our Lord and God. If you look up Domitian on Wikipedia, you will find out. Rome was required to to ascribe that phrase to the Roman Empire. Anybody reading Revelation in the first century would have immediately recognized just how subversive this is. The book of Revelation is saying there's only one Lord and God, and it ain't the emperor it's drawing the strongest possible contrast between true worship and false worship and pressing the question to us, what do you worship? Because we all worship something. So even if you don't identify as a religious person, maybe you say, look, I'm not even sure if I believe in God. But even if I do, you know, I'm not the kind of person that I don't bow down and worship things. Revelation is saying, don't fool yourself. In every single heart, there is a throne, and either God is sitting on that throne or something else is. But every single person worships. Don't make the tragic mistake of thinking that you don't worship, because we all worship. Because in every human heart, there's something about which we say, if I have this in my life, then I'll be happy. Or if I have this in my life, then I'll know that I'm somebody. Or if I have this in my life, then my life will have meaning and worth and value and significance and security. We all have something like that in our life. And whatever it is, that's what we worship. Do you realize what this does to us? Our happiness, our somebodyness, our meaning, significance, and security in life is determined by something. It determines the way we see reality and therefore the way we respond to reality. So do you ever wonder, you know, where does gnawing anxiety come from? Where does uncontrollable anger come from? Where do shame or despair or hopelessness come from? Something is on the throne of our hearts. And, and whatever it is, it's like the, that Roman Empire. It's demanding that we worship, that we bow down, and that we fulfill all its demands on our life. It oppresses us. It crushes us. It punishes us. So, you know, whatever it is, it's on the throne of our hearts and it's demanding that we worship it. It's, it's, it's punishing us. So whenever you don't live up to the demands of that thing, out comes the anxiety, out comes the anger, out comes the shame and the despair and the hopelessness because the counterfeit kings in our lives are just like the Roman empire. They're all saying, worship me or I will crush you. I will punish you. Friends, to worship is to get a glimpse of reality. It's to get a glimpse of the reality of who God is, because when we change the way we see reality, it transforms the way we respond to reality. But that leads to our next point. We've just seen there's a throne here, but next we see that there's some tears here. So at the very beginning of chapter five, John says, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. Now, This scroll and its seals um, play a big part of the book of Revelation over the next two chapters in six and seven, and we'll talk about that in the next couple of weeks. But this scroll has occupied a lot of attention uh, for people over the years. Many people debate, what is this scroll? There are a lot of options, but the most plausible is that this scroll is like God's master plan for establishing his kingdom on earth. To put this in entrepreneurial terms, this is like God's master vision, mission, and strategy for bringing perfect justice and renewal to the whole world. That's that's what is going on here. And that makes perfect sense of what happens next. Notice that John says, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Now, notice that John is weeping loudly. Why is he weeping? Because notice, he makes a big deal about this. He doesn't just say that he was weeping. It says he was weeping loudly. Here's what's going on. Um, This throne room vision is uh, an invitation not just to see God as he really is, but to see the whole world As it really is. Friends, that's one of the main purposes of the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, God is inviting us up into the control room, as it were, and He's saying, I want to show you what the world looks like. I want to show you what history looks like, what reality looks like from my point of view. What does the world look like from God's point of view? If God's world is a world of perfect light, and joy, and love, then our world is really more like the upside down. It's a shadow world of darkness, despair, and destruction. So for instance, you might be familiar with the Lord's Prayer. That's the prayer that the Lord Jesus taught his disciples to pray. It begins like this, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's master plan is that everything would be on earth as it is in heaven. Now, it's obvious to pretty much everybody in this world that right now this world is not the way it's supposed to be. When we get a chance to see the world as God sees it, it becomes even more painfully obvious that the world we live in is definitely not the way God intended it to be. John is weeping because the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Now, here's why this is so important. This means that to worship, remember, to worship is to get a glimpse of reality. That means seeing God as he really is. That means praising him, but it also means seeing the world as it really is, and that means lament. That means weeping. That means tears. That means that we should weep over this pandemic that we should weep over the climate and the destruction of our world. It means that we should weep over the murders of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor, that we should weep over the ongoing prejudice and racism against Asian Americans, that we should be weeping over uh, the countless other persons of color that are being crushed in the gears of racialized systems that perpetuate racial injustice in our world. This means that we should be weeping over people who don't have enough food or clothes to wear or a place to call home, that we should be weeping over poverty. It means that we should be weeping over um, all the forces of evil, cruelty, oppression, domination, corruption, uh, greed and consumerism and apathy that are destroying this world. We should be weeping over all of that and so much more. To worship is to get a glimpse of ultimate reality, and when we see uh, what change the way we see reality, it transforms the way we respond to reality. But worship means not just seeing God as he really is. It means seeing the world as it really is and weeping over that, but that's not all. Notice that John also says that he began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. That means that John is saying, look, God's master plan is to establish his kingdom, to bring justice and renewal to the world. But but is there anyone who can put things right? Is there anyone who can fulfill and establish this plan in the world? Because if there's not, then that is something to weep about. It's kind of like a story from the movie Waiting for Superman, which is about the brokenness of our education system here in America. One of the main figures in that movie was Jeffrey Canada. Jeffrey is a, an educator, a renowned educator. He's a writer and a social activist. He's the founder of the Harlem children's zone in New York city, which has done amazing things for education in the city during the movie. Uh, Jeffrey Canada tells a story about how he grew up in the South Bronx, which at that time especially would have been a place where all the darkness and despair and destruction of the world would have been right up in your face, and there's nothing you can do about it. So when he was a kid, he says he used to love to read comic books, and by far his favorite hero was Superman. Because he says that even in the depths of the ghetto, you you just knew that Superman is coming. You don't know when, but you know that at some point he's coming and he's going to save all the people. But then in a conversation with his mother, his mom told him that Superman wasn't real. And Jeffrey Canada just broke down weeping. But as he says when he's telling the story that my mom thought I was crying because it was like Santa Claus isn't real. I was crying because there was no one with enough power to come and save us. Friends, to worship is to get a glimpse of reality, not just to see God as he really is and to praise him, but to see the world as it really is and to lament the state of that world. Worship means praising. It also means lamenting, but our tears are never the end of the story. And that leads to our last point. We've talked about the throne and we've just seen some tears, but lastly, we need to see the lamb. At at the end of this passage, Uh, You know, if this world is, um, is broken, and if God's scroll, if that is his master plan to bring justice and renewal to the world, then how does that happen? Because remember, John is weeping that there was nobody who was able to fulfill this plan. But then all of a sudden, he hears something surprising to him. He says, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, at first glance, this verse um, looks like we're back to that problem that we started with in the beginning. Because lion, that word lion, that's an image of military power. Or notice when it talks about the tribe of Judah or David, um, that's... uh, nationalistic language. David was the first king of the tribe of Judah, the nation of Israel. And it says that, that he's conquered. In other words, it, it sounds like this is a vision of military nationalistic conquest of one tribe over against every other tribe on earth. It sounds like it's just perpetuating yet another oppressive regime of power. But friends, this is where John has a surprise for us. Because this whole vision, chapters 4 and 5, this throne room vision really is a study in contrasts. So that just as God's throne is completely unlike any human throne, so also God's way of conquering is completely unlike any human way of conquering. Because notice in this passage, there's a contrast between what John hears and what he sees. What does John hear? He hears about the lion of the tribe of Judah, you know, military conquest, vanquishing your enemies. That's what he hears. But what does he see? He says, In between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And that word slain literally is the word slaughtered. Friends, this is talking about Jesus on the cross. Do you realize what this means? What is God conquering? God is not conquering people. God is conquering all the forces of evil that are conquering us. And how does he do it? The lamb who was slain. The lamb who was slain. God is conquering all the forces of evil, not by wielding violence, but by absorbing all of the violence in himself because that is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. Notice that when Jesus goes to take the scroll In other words, to take up his authority and his power to fulfill God's plan for the earth. It says that the whole scene, the 24 elders, the living creatures, all of heaven, bowed down and was worshiping God. And it said, I mean, worshiping Jesus. And they all said, worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Friends, Jesus was slain. He was crushed in order to ransom us, to rescue us from all the forces of evil that are conquering us. And the place of that victory was the cross. That means that Jesus Christ defeated all the forces of evil, suffering, and death by allowing evil, suffering, and death to unleash, to disembog the full force of all its power on him. It emptied itself on him. It it, it spent itself on him. The cross looks like the place of ultimate defeat. But friends, remember, to worship is to get a glimpse of reality. When you see Jesus for who he really is, when you see the cross for what it really is, you realize that we're living in the upside down. And when we look at Jesus on the cross, we're beginning to get a glimpse of the right side up. Because that's the gospel. God does not bring his power into the world by conquering. He brings his power into the world by being conquered. God doesn't bring his victory into the world through power, but through weakness, because on the cross, Jesus Christ, the way Jesus Christ defeated all evil, suffering and death was by allowing it to defeat him on the cross. So that when we look at Jesus on the cross, it looks in our eyes like the place of ultimate defeat. But in reality, the cross is the ultimate victory of everything that is defeating us. Do you realize what that does for you? Do you ever feel like you're trapped by forces that that you neither understand nor control, that that your life is full of things that you do, think and feel, and, and you know that you shouldn't, but you just can't break free from those things. Jesus died on the cross to break the power of those forces in your life. Or do you ever feel shame or despair or humiliation or condemnation because you feel like a failure or a loser or a fraud? You know what that is? Those are the counterfeit gods sitting on the throne of your heart, gods of approval, of power, of success, gods of romance or achievement or ambition. They're they're sitting on the throne of your heart. But just like the Roman emperor, they're saying, worship me or I will crush you. And they always do. They're always oppressing us, dominating us, crushing us punishing us because we can never live up to all the demands that we that they make in our lives. But Jesus Christ died on the cross to set you free from all the counterfeit gods that, that are oppressing and dominating us and to set us free from those things. Or do you ever long for a world of peace and harmony and, and reconciliation between all people? You know, the, the political... Counterfeit God of our age has us convinced that the only way that vision happens is by getting rid of all the people who are opposed to that vision. You know, the problem is that we're so focused on taking the other side out that we would rather see them destroyed than redeemed. You know, we talk a lot about inclusion in our world, but does our vision for inclusion include our enemies? Notice that Jesus, he ransomed us, he rescued us, he restored us. Notice what it says, to ransom a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, not from my tribe, every tribe. As I said, we talk a lot about inclusion in our culture. Does our vision for inclusion include people from every tribe? Does it include even our enemies? The gospel vision does, the uh, the God's vision for the world does, so that, that when we own that vision for ourselves, if we ever have uh, enough vision to say that we would want to see our enemies included in the renewal of this world, that vision only comes from the gospel. Friends, one of the most stunning examples of this I've ever read comes from the great writer James Baldwin. James Baldwin uh, was one of the greatest thinkers and writers during the civil rights movement. Interestingly, uh, James Baldwin, he grew up in the church. He was actually a childhood preacher, actually somewhat of a star preacher in Harlem when he was growing up. But the church he grew up in was a very fundamentalist, authoritarian, oppressive, legalistic kind of place so that when he left that church as a young man and later in his life, whenever he would write explicitly about religion or the church, James Baldwin really didn't have very many good things to say about it. But when James Baldwin wrote about his vision for the world, his vision for reconciliation, he was far more impacted by the reality of what the gospel really is than even he could understand. So in 1963, he wrote a letter to his nephew James encouraging his nephew in the struggle for justice. But listen to what he says. He tells his nephew, Please try to be clear, dear James. There is no reason for you to try to become like white men and no basis whatever for their impertinent assumption that they must accept you. The the really terrible thing, old buddy, is that you must accept them. You must accept them and accept them with love, for these people have no other hope. They are your brothers, your lost younger brothers, and we cannot be free until they are free. This is astounding to me. This is an African-American man who grew up in the height of Jim Crow talking about people who would oppress him, even kill him, and saying, I don't want to see them destroyed. I want to see them set free because I don't want to live in a world in which they're not included because a world without them wouldn't be a fully redeemed world. Friends, do you long for a world like that? We live in the upside down. Do you long For the right side up. When we change the way we see reality, it transforms the way we respond to reality. Let God carry you up into worship. Let Him carry you up into the throne room so that you can see God as He really is, so that you can see this world and lament over this world as it really is, but also so that you could see Jesus and the cross as it really is, that you could see Him dying in order to rescue you and free you in order to live in that world and so that you could help others find their way into that world as well. Let's pray. Father, we praise you our Lord and God, for you are worthy of all glory and honor and power. We praise you, Lord Jesus, the lamb who is in the center of the throne. We give all our praise and glory this morning to the one who is seated on the throne and to the lamb at the center of the throne and to the Holy Spirit, to our triune God. For you, God, have enacted your master plan to bring justice and healing and renewal to this world in the place you did it was on the cross of your son, Jesus Christ. And now we live in the wake of that. We pray this morning, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to see God as he really is, to see this world as it really is, and to see you and your cross, Lord Jesus, as it really is, that the more we see reality, the more it would change and transform the way we respond to reality, that we would be vessels of your world, your love, and your gospel to the world around us. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.